y'all. Welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to be a scientist. So now today, finally, is one of those episodes that we've been mentioning this season where we explore a different thread of a topic that we've already covered earlier. So in our first episode this season, we talked about geodesy and the expedition to Peru and all of that stuff. Today, we're going to kind of revisit some of those ideas, but with new and still ridiculous BA. But first, let's deal with our weekly business. Please remember to go to iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to your podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. And at the, the very least, favorite us or follow us so that you know when our new episodes are coming out. And it also helps other people find us, which we would really appreciate. We also put stuff on Facebook and Instagram for you to see. We're at BA and Science there. You can also email us at gmail.com, BA and Science at gmail.com. And we have Patreon. That link appears sporadically when I post our episodes, but we have extras over there, bonus content and all that kind of stuff. It's an absolute bargain. You got to go and follow us on Patreon. Plus you get, there's no ads over there because you're paying for that. So any addendums from last week before we get started on our BA today? Uh, last week and the week before, I think. So apparently there's a 1936 movie called The Story of Louis Pasteur. And the guy who was like Pasteur won an Oscar for that portrayal. Oh. That's interesting. Um this i don't know dad just finds these things these fun facts but apparently an electrician for warner brothers came up to this guy's name was paul muni after a screening of the film and told him that his nine-year-old son asked him to buy him a microscope because of the movie that he watched and so even though like muni went on to win the oscar he said that that was his greatest greatest compliment that he had ever received um, and that all other accolades meant nothing compared to the fact that some nine-year-old wanted to get a microscope because of his portrayal of Louis Pasteur. I love that. That's something that you should try to watch for our Evil Donkeys episode. Yeah, I I have to put it on my list because unlike my husband, I can handle watching films in black and white and actually find them to be quite entertaining. I didn't know that was an, I did not know that that was not a thing for your husband. Oh no, he, he can barely even stand the old Star Wars movies and those are in color, but he can barely stand the old Star Wars movie because the technology is so terrible. So you tell him he has to watch a black and white movie. It's not happening. It's just not happening. I'm He wants all the special effects and all the glitz and glam and whatever. Oh. And yeah, he can't, like he would, he will admit that they're okay. Like it's not that, that, not that he doesn't think that the Star Wars films are Oh yeah, no, no, no. I get it. But like, if you told him pick a Star Wars movie to watch, he would never pick the first three. Oh. Time-wise. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Four, five, and six. Four, five, and six. Yes. He would not pick those. That's wild i had I, so then i don't i mean getting him to watch a black and white movie yeah i no. don't think that's happening no it w- absolutely would not based on what you've just told me no way but anyway i apparently like don't get mad at me mom and dad i think i'm an old lady because i like watching the tcm classic movie channel or whatever there's good stuff on there oh good movies and some things were so racy i was like can they put this in a movie in the 30s it's a bit appalling quite frankly what were our 
elders doing in the 30s and 40s? Actually, probably trying to not think about the Depression. So you know what? So, um, so you know what? I'm gonna because remember the Great Depression wasn't that great. It's not so that great. It takes every. It takes you know all kinds of things <laughs> to forget. But it. yeah, it's really interesting. Like the kinds of things I can't remember the movie now that I. I mean, it's been probably a month or two, which is why I can't remember it. But it was Humphrey Bogart, and he's like a criminal, and he escapes from prison. And the first part of the movie, you don't see like everything's from his eyes that's happening. Oh man! And then he has like plastic surgery to change his face uh-huh. and then once he has the plastic surgery it's Humphrey Bogart oh my god but you don't see this main character like you just see everything happening through his eyes initially until anyway it was okay. really interesting yeah. and I was like I don't know if I love this but then I was like well this is kind of very artistic anyway I don't remember the name dad probably knows what movie I'm talking about because I feel like I talked to him about it he probably does because it was on the classic movie channel and he was like, oh yeah, I think I saw, I, I recorded that one. So he's probably watching. Anyway, so that was dad's uh, comment to that. Also, he filled us in on, we talked, we were trying to figure out what era of art we were in with Louis. Yes. Anyway, so 19th century painting started with the tail end of neoclassicism followed by romanticism, then naturalism and realism, and then impressionism. Okay, yes. So I that makes sense. realized we had squished all those into the 19th century. I didn't either. I feel like those should all take a lot longer, but okay. I took music appreciation, not art history in college. Same. So. I, we were, I was music too. So yeah, I, but I do yeah. appreciate art. I love art, but yeah. I didn't take any classes on it. Sorry. And then last week we talked about perfume and rba a relationship to chanel number five and mom let us know we were curious like do you wear perfume do you not whatever yeah mom is of the opinion she does not wear perfume she wears like a coco chanel lotion yes mademoiselle not like perfume because she doesn't like how it lingers on clothes Mm, yeah like even like you know if you do the ritz spritz spritz the wrist spritz you know Mm -hmm. like she still thinks that gets on your clothes and she doesn't like it okay um one of our grandmother's scents was opium by ysl awesome and our other grandmother's scent when she first got married was white shoulders which i'm sorry is a terrible name for perfume i've heard of that before i've heard of it i've heard of it I, I don't is it is, is it around today like chanel number five probably not because people were like um white shoulder sounds weird what the heck does that even mean why is that a perfume name i don't know well okay so i don't know if it's still around today i mean it um actually yeah it is it is still around today is it? oh man classic okay. floral based on aldehydes okay great but like why white shoulders like what's their logo who puts it out uh let's see as i'm thank goodness for the internet because we're looking this up in real time so it's by i don't know how to say it evian i don't know okay Hmm. but it's you can still get it okay is it like the kind of thing you'd find in walmart or the kind of thing you'd find in like macy's and times square like you know right off the times square i would say that in between those two okay you would you could find it in a department store well because I'm looking at it right now and do you remember that um powder that grandma had that she would let us use after bath yeah 
that it's that vibe because I'm looking at a powder thing with the little puff that's in it of white oh. shoulders. So I don't know if it was white shoulders powder, but like it was oh. the same vibe. So think that. Oh my gosh, I can smell. Speaking of how I can smell it. memories, we can, yeah, we can, I can, I can smell I haven't it. thought about that in eons, but as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh yeah, I do oh, remember yeah. that. So yeah, I don't think that that powder was white shoulders, but it was okay. what she had was that okay. kind of vibe, okay. that kind of okay. smell. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm still of the opinion that White Shoulders is a terrible... I mean, I don't know that Opium is a better perfume name because what kind is. of message is that sending? But, you know. But, okay, but everything about the perfume industry is inscrutable because if you are watching a commercial and you're like, what exactly <laughs> are you selling? It's definitely a perfume commercial because they don't make sense. They're oh my like, gosh, are the cologne ones? You know, like there's that Greek god who's standing there and it's weird and he's half clothed and I'm like, what? I don't, what is this a commercial for? Like, I do I want my husband to smell like this guy? Because I don't think I do. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure no. So I don't, I don't, clearly perfume advertising was not meant for us. Maybe it's because yeah. we're Pavos, you know, if we were. Maybe it's because we're not perfume people. Maybe if we were perfume part. people, like said, we would see, one, but... we would see those Dolce & Gabbana commercials and be like, oh my gosh that commercial for that perfume I have to have it maybe I mean even as much as I like Johnny Depp like his cologne commercial I'm just like I would not buy that for my husband just because it's I don't know because I'm just like, walking in a desert saying things that don't make sense <laughs> I don't know I so anyway all right listen, well dear perfume manuf no dear perfume marketers do better thank you the end <laughs> but also, we're still curious. If you haven't yet had a chance to tell us your thoughts about perfume, we still want to hear them because obviously this is a very fascinating topic for us seeing as we spent a very long time talking about it just now. Well, and what's interesting is that, so our grandmother, that generation, yes. you know, the greatest they generation. All wore, I think. Everybody wore perfume, I think. Because, well, because you, like... I remember going to church, her church when we were little, and she would hang out with her also elderly lady friends. They all had competing scents. Like, I remember that mm. smell, you know what I mean? Okay. But I don't think that, that boomers and like our parents' generation, I don't think that they're as committed to a scent. And for mm -hmm. sure, our generation, as I said, if it's not cucumber melon body spray with glitter in it from Bath and Body Works, <laughs> then we're probably not wearing it. Probably so. Not. I don't know. And I can't imagine that generations under us are big into perfume. I know. I know because I, because isn't that something that you would like, oh, my mom always wore this scent and now it's my scent or so. I feel like that that would be a thing, but that's not, not true for our mom, but she's right though. It does get in your clothes. And for me, it gets in my hair. Like it, it's like, cause I have really long hair. It's, you know. Look, I know some of my students listen. If you're listening, I'm going to shout out Leah. Cause I know she listens. Do you wear perfume? I've never asked you this, but do you wear perfume? Does your mom wear perfume? Because like, you know, she's like another generation yeah. below us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just want to know. I'm just curious. Yeah, so many We questions. need to actually put up a poll. Do you wear perfume? And then if you do, you should have to like comment. I don't know. I Maybe our social media person can get on that. I'm only half of our social media person. The reference librarian is the other half. So, oh my gosh, the reference librarian has been having a rough go, guys. She's been really overcommitted. And um, what do we pay this woman for, honestly? <laughs> she probably should be fired. 
but unfortunately we can't pay anyone else so but, but no one will work for such a small wage so we're stuck meaning with her. meaning for free so for free. It's, yes it's she's just you know she might get back with the program guys you know we'll, we'll try we're gonna do our best okay um but I don't think I had any guesses no, there weren't any guesses. No, there were no guesses that came across. I didn't, it's, you know why? It's because I didn't give a punny clue. Mm, that could be. So hope you got a pun this week because... Uh, I don't. Well, that's okay. Maybe this one will be easier to guess. Okay. We'll see. The only addendum I have is to say an update for our schedule next week, the week after we post this episode Mm -hmm. we're going to take a little spring break we'll put a little Mm -hmm. note up about it but there are going to be mini episodes so if you're missing us you can go over to patreon and you can listen Mm -hmm. to mini episodes because you can find you know all the ba and science content that you want over there but yes Mm -hmm. we'll take a quick break we will be back with the rest of our season on 419 yeah all right but that's all i've got so you ready to take a break and then get started yep all right break time Brenna has got the bio this week. I know absolutely nothing about the guy we're covering today. I, in fact, have even forgotten what made me put him on the list as a BA in the first place. So hopefully you're going to clear that up for us. Can you give us our quote? Yes. So the quote is, I went at the last moment to make my bow to the only line that was still alive and with whom I had lived in very good harmony. I wished also to say goodbye to the monkeys who had been equally my companions in misfortune. I have concerns for this man. Yeah, it's going to get a little wild, pun intended. Oh, my, yes. A little Dr. Doolittle, apparently. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'll actually read more. There's more to that quote, but I'll read that later on. But um, I didn't really have anything else that I could think of to use as a quote. And... I mean, talking about lions and monkeys living in good, good, very good harmony with the lion and, you know. But why did he have to live in harmony with lions? Can we? Yeah, let's get into that. Okay. So that is a quote from RBA this week, and his name is Francois Arago, which I'm calling him Frank because it just feels pretentious saying Francois. I mean, for sure. Obviously, he didn't feel pretentious saying it because that's how French people would say it. But, you know. And it wouldn't be an episode of BA in Science if we didn't drag the French in some way. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of at, our at thing. this point, there's no way that our one French list, our hypothetical one French listener that we've always talked about is still with us, you know. No, and we, we miss you, but, that bridge. you know, we, we've thoroughly <laughs> burned that bridge. That bridge so. a long time ago, actually. So when I first started researching Frank, I thought it was going to be kind of short and sweet. I wasn't really going to have a lot um, because there's not a lot about his life after a certain point. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, I'm just going to be using like Wikipedia and Britannica. But Frank did us a favor and wrote an autobiography about his younger years. Not like all his life, but his younger life. Amazing. I'm going to be able to tell you about him. But for the most part, I'm going to have to take his word from his autobiography and relating things that happened in his life, even though sometimes I saw like different accounts of things in other places. But I'm just going to stick to his autobiography. I mean, it's quite possible he embellished it. But you know what? We're going to just take it straight from his mouth. We took Paracelsus' word for a lot of things. That's true. We did. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So, Frank was born Dominique Francois Jean Arago on February 26th, 6th, 1786. He was born in a small village of about 3,000 people. The name was, I'm probably going to say this wrong, Estegel, um, but it was near Perpignan over in like the Eastern Pyrenees area. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, his father was a lawyer, had a little bit of property like vineyards, olive tree, plantation, etc. Mm-hmm. And Papa Arago would actually later become the treasurer of the mint for Perpignan. Nice. One source I read said that his mother essentially homeschooled the kids, but Frank says he went to primary school in Estegel. So I'm not, hmm. I don't know. But I do have a fun fact about his last name because I was wondering when I started researching him how Frenchy gets the last name Arago because to me that doesn't sound French. It but, sounds Spanish, but he was by the Pyrenees. Yeah, so he's living in the Pyrenees region, and that is the natural border between Spain and France, right? Mm-hmm. So his ancestors actually probably were Spanish, but by the time Frank comes around, the family isn't tracing their roots all the way back to Spanish descent. They're just kind of, you know, they're French. They're French. Um, but I found this out because in his story, Frank gets questioned at school really harshly about whether he is French, and it was kind of a sticking point for one of the professors that he had to deal with because... If you don't know anything about history, France and Spain fought a lot. There was a lot of problems with France. All the time, pretty much. Like all the time. Like it will happen multiple times in this story, I believe. Yeah. So there's a lot of prejudice against like anything Spanish, you know? I mean, I feel like that was true all over the place. I guess the Spaniards weren't making friends because remember Pope Daddy was Spanish and nobody liked that either. Right. um, So um, anyway, I just kind of thought that was interesting that, yeah, he probably does have spanish roots with a name like that but again probably went back far enough that they essentially just claim french you know well we're french and i think maybe on one side like his mom could have been just you know french but his dad's ancestor is probably spanish Mm -hmm. so interestingly this area that he's living in was a stopping point for the army heading to the pyrenees so frank says his house was full of officers and soldiers like all the time during the conflict happening um, between France and Spain, they were, fi- I don't know, they'd be fighting about something. I didn't look it up because, again, they're always fighting about something. It's a lot of yeah. war, a lot of revolution all the time during Frank's lifetime. So yes. I just didn't go down the rabbit hole of why are the French and the Spanish fighting today? I did, but it's oh. important for my stuff. So okay, I'll cool. fill in some, you know, you I'll fill in some of gaps. Why yeah. it mattered because, I don't know, something. Yeah. Somebody said something mean. I don't know. Um, I thought... Okay. I thought it was kind of funny, though, because Frank wrote that he was, as young boys often are, very interested by the soldiers and that his parents had to keep a close eye on him because he wanted to join them. And he writes in his autobiography that he actually did try to join them. Hmm. So he wrote, on one occasion, these warlike tastes had nearly cost me dear. It was the night of the Battle of Pay Retorts. I saw a brigadier and five troopers come up who, at the sight of the Tree of Liberty, called out, Somos perdidos. I ran immediately to the house to arm myself with a lance which had been left there by a soldier, and placing myself in ambush at the corner of a street, I struck with a blow of this weapon the brigadier. The wound was not dangerous. A cut of the saber, however, was descending to punish my hardihood. Uh, I'm sorry, that's kind of a... I feel like that's an overreaction, my good sir. This is a child who who poked (laughs) you with a lance, and you're like, you know what? Saber, get it out. 
I mean, he probably didn't realize it was a kid. Um, but apparently some other men were nearby. They came by and they helped him out of the situation. They took the men prisoners and all this. But he was seven. Allegedly. Cool. See, I allegedly. told you, I told you, child, like I have I have a small boy. None of that surprises me. Yeah. And again, maybe some of this is embellished. I, I don't know. It's possible because um, you know, when someone writes their own autobiography, you know. This story sounds so far, it sounds entire based on what I know from being a boy mom, it sounds entirely likely. Yeah. So I mean, sounds a little bit wild. So Frank has a bunch of brothers, and I guess no sisters, because there's no mention of any girls in any accounts I read. So poor mama, I mean, yeah. she's probably like, ugh, why do I have all these boys? Except for at that point, like, you wanted boys, because, you know, they were better. But anyway, <laughs> he might have had sisters, and they might have not just been important enough to mention. I don't know. Could be. Um, but she had Frank first, and then he has brothers Jean, Joseph, Jacques, Etienne, and Victor. Wow. So Jean and Joseph end up in the Mexican army and rose in the ranks. I don't know how. I didn't track all these people down. These are just okay. kind of... Meanwhile, Jacques and Etienne were writers, like studied literature, so mm. forth. And then Victor would become commandant of artillery. I'm assuming for the French army, but maybe it was in Mexico. I don't know. I saw oh. some varying things. So anyway, lots of boys. Lots, yeah. of, lots of testosterone things happening in that family. So much. So much. Um, so when Papa A gets the job in Perpignan, the treasury job, the family moves there. And according to Frank, he attended the college there and studied literature. But then he's walking around the town ramparts and saw an officer of engineers working. And like he'd be wearing a fancy uniform. And Frank wants to know how, like, how are you in such a fine and fancy uniform at like such a young age? And the guy was like, well, I was a student at... Uh, the echo polytechnique so frank's like cool how do i get in and the dude tells him he'll have to take an exam but apparently frank was so interested in getting that epaulette so he figures out what he has to do to get into the school mm-hmm. and then he realized like I, I have to know more than just literature so he does a huge 180 starts taking math classes and that's not good enough so he teaches himself through reading all kinds of material. So he decides he really wants to be in artillery service. And he heard that an officer ought to understand music, fencing, and dancing. So he, according to him, devoted the first hours of each day to the cultivation of these accomplishments. Oh. Anyway, long story short, he's just going to educate himself with all the things. And in 1803, at the age of 17, he does get in. Okay. Okay. Now, in 1804, something kind of big happened in France. Do you know what, what that could is? possibly have been going on in the early 1800s in French? Anyone know? Yeah. Is, so it, Napoleon... is it short and rhymes with Bonaparte? Yeah. Uh, yes. So Napoleon declares himself emperor in 1804, right? Neat. The French yeah. loved that. They were super excited. <laughs> yeah. So did the rest he... of the world. Yeah. Europe was here for it. Mm-hmm. so then he starts making everyone take oaths of loyalty or whatever yeah. they call it you know and um i'm gonna be honest i kind of did skim through some of this but there's political unrest obviously and supposedly frank knew a guy who was planning on assassinating napoleon and somehow he maybe kept him from doing i don't know he relates some story about like he stopped some guy who was gonna assassinate assassinate napoleon which like maybe that wasn't your best move frank i'm not sure i mean well, History would have remembered you very differently had you let him go do it. Yeah. I'm just saying. 
Um, I don't want to go too much. Are you talking about his geodesic work? Like you're going to talk about it? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, he, so he does some stuff. Okay. But he ends up leaving school and he goes to the observatory of Paris. And mm-hmm. while he's there, he gets into physics and astronomy and that fits in line with his aptitude and love of math that he got into after he switched over from literature. Mm-hmm. And so by 1806, he ends up in Spain doing geodesic work that I'm not talking about, but it was quite an experience. To quite say the experience. least, it was an outrageous experience. So in 1807, there was another war called the Peninsular War. And so it was France invading Spain and Portugal. So now we got Frenchy Frank, and he's in Spain doing this geodesic work mm-hmm. when those two countries are at war. And so things are getting dicey yeah. by 1808. So Frank is in Mallorca, and I guess feelings towards him, feeling towards him is not so great. So he, he says, again, this is his autobiography, but he says he has to disguise himself, and he had to sneak out onto a ship that would head towards Barcelona, because Barcelona was under France's control at the time. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But somehow that doesn't work out and he ends up imprisoned in Mallorca. And okay. So his account of how things went down is kind of confusing. Um, And so other accounts you read don't include a lot of these details, but from what I can tell, eventually he escapes. And by the end of July, 1808, he makes it to Algiers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I guess Algiers was someplace they thought they could get safely. The British Navy, I believe was on Spain side. Right. So I, I think, think so. that, like you couldn't you didn't want to go straight to France because like if they knew you were French and you were going to France, the British Navy was going to like move on in there and help stop that. Yeah. So they found the French consul in Algiers and he hooks them up with some fake Austrian passports. Like okay. he and some other people that are French that need to get back. OK. Gets them on a ship to Marseille. OK. So this ship. Sounds wild. Again, wild. Quote, the cargo consisted of a great number of groups. Among the passengers, there were five members of the family, which the baker had succeeded as king of the Jews, two ostrich feather merchants, Moroccans, Captain Grok from Norway, two lions sent by the day to the Emperor Napoleon, and a great number of monkeys. Okay, question. Several questions. Mm-hmm. First question. Is lions and monkeys on a boat really the best way to go about it first? Okay, how else do you transport lions to the French emperor? You could not do that. Okay, but the day of Algiers, who's like the prince of the, yeah. the name of it, right? Felt like he needed to send him lions, apparently. I don't know. I might have tried to find a caravan, but okay. That's, that's an acceptable answer. Right. Next question. Um, what? Ostrich feather merchants? King of I the mean, Jews. I, yeah, I I don't I I don't know. I don't know. It, it was a lot. There was a lot happening on this boat. Yeah. I feel like this was chip. Chip. I, I feel like there was a lot going yeah. on here. Okay. So but notice there are two lions. Yeah, well. T- tuck that in your satchel though, because okay. if you remember our quote. I do remember our quote which is why i maybe think that putting lions on a boat wasn't a great idea (laughs) that's all that's all i'm saying 
Yeah. Um, so this ship is not a French ship, obviously, right? Because they don't want to get attacked. And so it's going with all this, this mishmash of people and these fake Austrian passports and whatever. Mm -hmm. The ship makes it all the way to the Bay of Lyon and a Spanish Corsair shows up and is all like, hey, guys, we're the captain now. So Frank oh. is taken prisoner. And initially, he and the other passengers are kept in a windmill, like a quarantine-type prison thing. Cool. Like, it was still common during those times to quarantine people arriving by sea from other mm -hmm. countries because they had to, um, they wanted to make sure they weren't bringing in, like, diseases, right? Yeah. Because you can pick up all kinds of things at sea or bring it with you from a different country, so they well, want to make they sure. Didn't, they didn't know that scurvy wasn't contagious, so, you know. Yeah, so... So they serve out that quarantine thing in the windmill, and then they're moved to some other fortress as prisoners. But Frank talks about them thinking that he's some Spanish deserter or something. I they, Like, they think, they know his paper's forged, or his paperwork's forged, but then they think that he must just be, like, a Spanish deserter. But oh. then he's like, no, actually, I'm French. And he is able to prove that, which is not great, I feel. But maybe that's better than being a Navy, Spanish naval deserter. Well, yeah, because probably you'd get executed right away. But if you were French, you could just be a prisoner of war. Yeah, maybe. So he's in jail. He gets moved around a bit. He was in different forts and garrisons and such. Again, it's a little confusing when he tries to tell the story, but it's more detailed than what you get from, like, Encyclopedia yeah. Britannic or whatever. Um, but at one point, he was in a ship off the coast, like, while um you know like the war is going on and stuff mm -hmm. anyway at some point he wrote that he met the dowager duchess of orleans which is louis philippe's mom yeah philippe will come back later so just like put a pin on him yeah him, whatever he's not super significant to our story per se but like he'll come back up well yeah okay so there's just it's a lot going on but when he first got captured he wrote to the day of algiers and told him that the spanish killed one of the lions oh so then I guess the day is like mad. Like, well, I'd be mad too. I went to all that trouble of having some. Send two lions, right? Like, yeah. I mean, no one just sends a lion that's rude. You always send them as a pair. Yeah, well, because also I hope that he sent them a boy and a girl because otherwise, how are you going to get baby lions for the new emperor <laughs> of France? I mean, look, that's like the way we do this, right? Noah set the tone. Right? Um, so I, I guess. So anyway, so Frank says this. So then he tells the Spanish to let his ship and everyone go and he I, I don't know by December 8th 1808 they're off the coast of Algiers and then there's drama and then they're heading towards okay anyway somehow or another he gets out of all this shenanigans and again his like Wikipedia biography is just like he was imprisoned and then was released so he has all these other details it's just a mess but that's where we get the I went at the last moment to make my bow to the only lion that was still alive and with whom I had lived in very good harmony. I wished also to say goodbye to the monkeys who had been equally my companions in misfortune. These monkeys, during our frightful misery, had rendered us a service which I scarcely dare mention and which will scarcely be guessed by the inhabitants of our cities who look upon these animals as objects of diversion. They freed us from the vermin which infested us. And showed particularly a remarkable cleverness in seeking out the hideous insects which lodged themselves in our hair. So, what you're saying is, I, okay, so, they I ate mean, all the rats, they ate all the rats. on No, the they ate all the bugs. Well, they, he said vermin, so does that mean rats too? 
Mm, infested us. I feel like it's like you can be I, infested I with Wait, rats. Do do monkeys eat rats? I don't feel like monkeys are omnivores, are they? I, I thought they were herbivores. I don't well, know. No, they eat bugs, so I guess they're omnivores. I don't know that they would eat a rat, though. That's the first thing my brain went to. And then, obviously, yes, they were picking bugs Lice. off of people. Lice. Like typhus. Which like, is great. And Thank other you nasty, that. lousy, lousy <laughs> diseases are no joke. Um, I <laughs> look, I haven't had a good pun in a while, so... So I, he didn't specifically say lice, but I mean, if you like typhus is one of those things you get from mm-hmm. lice, but like that, those would have been things that would have plagued people on a ship for a oh, long Oh, for sure. Time, for sure. So good thing the monkeys were on the ship. That's so great. I would love to be stuck on a ship with one probably sad lion because his <laughs> or wife angry. or her husband. Sad or ang- well, you never know what stage of grief a lion is in. It's difficult to tell. There's a lot of growling. Do they go through all the same stages we do? I, I don't know. Probably the same person who would know about depressed parrots from oh, the yeah. would, would know about, you, you know, to know about how lions stages grieve. Stages of grief, yeah, for yeah. lions. Lion stages know. of grief. Or is hey, it mostly just stage? We need to ask the lion whisperer. Have yeah. talked about the lion whisperer before? There was a show called yeah. The Lion Whisperer. Yeah. And he, like, still has his, like, sanctuary and stuff anyway maybe he could tell us he probably could anyway guys i don't i don't even know like there's so like that was me trying to condense the crazy amounts of information that frank just spewed out about this time and it was confusing and not in order chronologically and we hopped around all over the place but anyway on christmas day frank and the gang whoever that is, I don't know, whoever he's traveling with, they made it back to Algiers. So they got stopped, right? Mm-hmm. And they were trying to get to France, but then because they couldn't get all the way to France, then they were just like, let's just turn around, and, like go back to Algiers. Okay. Okay. So small, little, tiny problem, right? Okay. So the day who sent the lions and like yeah. basically helped get them rescued because he got mad about the lions and was like, bring my ship back, whatever. Um, He's literally just been beheaded in some, like, political coup or something. That's I'm so hazy great. on the details. I'm, I'm hazy. Uh, yeah. But there's a new day in town. Is um, he friendly? Well, so side note about this new day, because Frank felt it worth mentioning, and I had to reread the sentences. Okay. So the day used to have a job in the mosques, the, this new one. Uh-huh. And this job was to remove... Mm, <laughs> sorry this this job was to remove superfluous hairs from dead bodies okay i don't mean disrespect because i do not know if this is a common practice for like muslims because i believe the day would be a muslim i believe okay so i'm not trying to be disrespectful but like what what qualifies as superfluous hairs? What and why yeah, is this where's where's the job? dividing line? Because you're dead, so technically all your hair is superfluous. <laughs> so let's start there. But like, why is that like a job? Like that's his job. Is it like okay, okay, maybe it's like because like cosmetologists and beauticians do work in mortuaries because mm-hmm. like sometimes you need to like right, y- sure, right. Okay. So maybe because they didn't have words for that back then maybe what he was he was essentially functioning as the beautician cosmetologist Hmm. in you know preparing a a body maybe maybe i don't know i don't like that for a job title though i wouldn't put that on my business cards i would put something 
drastically different on my remover of superfluous hairs yeah um so between that so that's like his day job i guess and and along with being the new day but between that and him spending all his time with his harem people got tired of that real quick so he was marched off and hanged oh yeah there's a lot of things there's a lot going on a lot of coups a lot of coups going on a lot of things okay so what about frank Well, again, his account's lengthy and kind of confusing. And in one other biography I read, supposedly the day thought they had treasure and then Frank was enslaved. Where would they have put the treasure? I don't know. The treasure was the lions. I I don't know. There's so much that's like very unclear about his life at this point. I don't know. It basically just sounds like it's wild. It just was wild. It just was, I don't know. There was a lot going on. It's war. It's the 17, well, early 1800s. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Wow. So we're just going to fast forward. And now it's July 1809 and Frank has made it back to Marseille. Yay. After some other quarantine, you know, on the line. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure. So since he had been gone for so long, because I think he left in 1806, right? Mm-hmm. And he hadn't really been able to let anyone know. Otherwise, his family thought he was dead. Oh, no. So, like, yay for his family finding out he isn't actually dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he does go home to his family for a short while when he gets back. But then he goes back to Paris where he drops off whatever, I don't know, whatever he was actually doing in Spain in the first place. I'll tell you about it. Okay, cool. Um, And so, yeah. So he does science stuff, and it's good. And in 1810, he gets elected to the French Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. which, as we have talked about before, is a big deal. It and is. And I'm t- going to talk about it even more, too, because okay. it's a, especially he's only 23. a big deal. He's yeah. only 23 at the time, and that's pretty impressive. So then he gets assigned as an astronomer of the Paris Observatory, mm-hmm. and he starts delivering lectures in 1812, which he continues to do until 1847. Um, And apparently they were popular. They were designed to be for the masses, not just like a select few. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think also somewhere around this time at the Polytechnic Institute, uh, he's like the chair of analytical geometry or something like that. Yeah, this and, you know, something else. He met Boney when Mm -hmm. he received whatever recognition the scientists and the Mm -hmm. artists, etc. received from Boney. Um, but overall, he didn't seem to be impressed by him or the whole event, um, although he talks about a Monsieur Lamarck crying because Boney was so mean to him. But overall, Lamarck? I don't know. I don't know. That's why I said a Monsieur Lamarck, because mm-hmm. we don't I don't have details. But I have the same question. Again, guys, listeners, friends, we cannot stress this enough when you are writing about what happens in your life you have to include all the tea because otherwise some poor podcaster 50 years from now is gonna be like which lamarck and why did he make him a story yeah i don't know you guys have got to include the juicy bits no please but also maybe don't cry because napoleon was mean to you like he was a terrible person like was he gonna mean to everybody it wasn't personal yeah he just had a napoleon complex he had a himself complex. Anyway, I'm not sure what all Maggie will cover because, again, from the bits of science I skimmed or tried to skip over, guy had a lot of things going on. Um, but I guess he went to England and Scotland yeah. to do some more geodesic work. I don't know. He was kind of all over the place. He was. He went everywhere. 
Um, but another big professional milestone for him was that on June 7th, 1830, after the previous secretary, Joseph Fourier, had died, he was elected as a perpetual secretary of the Academy of Sciences. Wow. It sounds important, but also, yeah, because being a secretary is like an actual job. Like, you know, you know, if you wanted to like put a club on your resume in high school or college, you'd like try to be the VP because the VP actually like hardly ever did anything because the right. president secretary did most everything and then the treasurer dealt with the money yeah and you're kind of just there for like moral support yeah anyway being like a perpetual secretary sounds like a lot of work he had to write everything down and i don't know well i mean he probably had like yeah you know so in this case the perpetual secretary was in charge of historical eulogies on past members which he was great at apparently well that's nice i mean among other things but that was like a thing a thing he had to do and he was good at it Anyway, he's going to keep on keeping on with the science stuff, but I'm going to leave him there with the Academy and his work. But let's talk about 1830. A little something called the July Revolution went down this year. I've heard of it. Also called the Second French Revolution, which, guys, y'all, I'm like, I just got to throw shade on France again. Like, I know you want to be cool like us, but you cannot keep revolting. Like, you do it once. Like, you can't keep having, you, you don't have a second revolution. Like, you do it once. And anyway, we, we all managed, we over here managed to not have a Napoleon situation, but we yeah. worked pretty hard at that. And I just feel that someone, it's not your fault now, but someone back then was asleep at the switch and Napoleon just slid right by. And all of a sudden he's like pulling a Caesar. And now here you are with the July revolution. Another, another revol- revolution. So in this case they overthrew charles the 10th i don't really remember how he got back on the throne i don't remember either like, it's bony was out and charles is a bourbon so he gets back on the throne but then they overthrew him i don't remember because again i yeah i don't know anyway i told you louis philippe would be back um so the monarchy restored after bony was a constitutional monarchy, but the House of Bourbon reestablished, was reestablished. Okay. But now we get the July monarchy, or the July revolution, sorry, and the House of Orleans, which is still tied to the Bourbons, but like through a different line. Mm-hmm. But anyway, also it was like popular sovereignty. So like elect your king. I, I don't know. Which anyway, is so weird, but okay. It, it was just, a, it, it was weird because whatever. But anyway, the only point, that, the reason that I mentioned that is our boy Frank was also a big player in politics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so at this point in his life, I don't have any more autobiographical information. He stopped, like he wrote his autobiography when he was fairly young. Yeah. Um, and he just wrote about all of that craziness in Algiers or whatever. So Frank is a Republican and he's a member of the Chamber of Deputies during this time. Oh. And I won't go into specifics, but apparently he did support and vote for a lot of policies supporting science and progress, you know, whatever. Yeah, sure. But anyway, he was kind of going through all of those upheavals of like Charles X and Louis Philippe and mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway. So here's what I know in the 18 years following this point, at this point in his life. Like okay. nothing. Nothing. That's what I know. He did some science stuff. He did government work. Okay. And now we're up to 1848. And guess what? Um, the French are revolting. What? I, mean, I might actually mean that as the double entendre that it sounds like, but. Because guys. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, sorry. Sorry, one hypothetical French listener. So Louis Philippe is going to get kicked out. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Charles gone and then he kicked out. And now we got Louis Philippe. Now he's kicked out, um, not right away in 1848, but it's coming. Mm-hmm. So Frank gets put into the provisional government as the minister of war and the Navy and colonies. And then well, listen, he was on a whole boat with an actual lion. So if there's okay. anybody who's qualified two, to be in charge two of the to Navy, start. Two to start. I mean, so he's clearly qualified. Two to start, and he let monkeys eat lice off of him. So, you know, if they had been baboons, they would have just eaten his face. So I'm Uh, glad. Right? He's lucky that they weren't. Yeah. Um, But, okay, I... Okay, one source said this, and Wikipedia referenced this one source, and I went to this one source, but he gets... So it got cited that he is the one who abolished slavery in the French colonies him by himself well like he was like the person who like put that forward okay really but when i go there's a list in wikipedia of when slavery was abolished in different places mm-hmm. it says that french colony slavery ended in 1847 which is before the revolution in 1848 when supposedly he would have been in charge to do that so I don't know. I don't know if it had like maybe been put forth and he like put his weight behind it when he became minister of the colonies. Could be. That, that could I be. Don't, I don't know. So there's a like, it would be a super BA thing if that's like something he did was get slavery abolished in the French colonies. Like I'm all about it. But yeah. I don't know, cannot say for 100, 100% sure that that is actually what went on. Okay. So we can say that like, Whoever did, we stand whoever did that. Like, that is, that's what we, you know, and if it was him, even cooler. Yeah. So this revolution is going on and we reach a coup d'etat on December 2nd, 1851. And that's when Boney III takes over. He's the captain now. He's the captain. I don't really remember Boney II. I think he was real short-lived and kind of crappy. Anyway. Yeah, right? So anyway, um, so Boney III is captain now. Frank wouldn't take the oath of allegiance that Boney was making everyone take. But apparently Frank was like respected enough by him that he kind of just let it slide. Didn't make him sign it. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, So by 1851, I mean, I guess if he's the minister of war and stuff, then he probably would have been close communication. And if he showed that he was helpful and loyal and helping Boney three, then that's why. If you were a new leader and the previous two people with your name had had really not great track records, especially with the armed forces in your country, wouldn't you be cozy with the minister of war no matter who he was? Because I would. I don't know. know. Again, there's so there's so much like information we just don't have about Frank, about like literally any of this. We just have these like little snippets of, oh, he helped abolish slavery in the French colonies or he was the minister of this. But he didn't write about it, and there's just not a ton that I could... Maybe there's more in French. Like Maybe there's more primary sources, but, like, from what I could find... Sure. That's what I got. Oh. Um, but it's 1851. Frank is actually in pretty poor health. He has diabetes and Bright's malady, which I'm going to talk about. Bright's malady and the legacy. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then one account talks about dropsy of the abdomen attended with effusions and swelling of the extremities. I don't... No, thank you. I don't, I don't know if that just, I mean, 
if you have diabetes, you can have swelling and gout and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. Anyway, then he went blind. Oh, no. That's yeah. So just a really, really sharp decline at the end of his life. Um, and Frank died on October 2nd, 1853 at the age of 67. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I've got. Um, I actually have a little bit more about kind of a few personal notes of his life. Um, when I'll talk about Bright's Melody, but I'll save that kind of for like the legacy of him as a person and okay. got some other quotes and stuff. And yeah. Okay. Well, then leave him there. should we take a break then? So I can tell you just what exactly he was doing in Spain that would have necessitated ending up on a boat with a monkey, one, a lion and a lion's a lion ghost. And- yeah. And ostrich feather merchants. Two of them. Two. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. All right. Break time. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. So as we've alluded to, as we've mentioned several times, I'm going to take us back down the geodesy rabbit hole and talk about more ways to measure stuff. So I want to start this with a question. Yay. I know, but there's some there's some interesting tidbits and there's there's right. adventure, there's okay. drama, there's escapades, you know, there's there's some stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I have a question for you, Brenna, to start off. Mm-hmm. When did you learn, or do you already know, where and how we decided how long a meter was going to be? I believe we discussed this in episode one. That a meter, the French defined a meter as like one billionth of the distance from somewhere to the North Pole or something ridiculous, right? Something like that, yes. Something like that. I learned that when I was researching for episode one, because it's never occurred to me up until this point in my life how a meter got defined as a meter. Because like, I don't know, for feet, it's always like, oh, the king's foot was this long. And that's, I don't don't know. I still don't actually know how 12 inches was decided for a foot. But anyway, that is when I learned. So, you know, this year. This year. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know either. Um, But that's something we're kind of going to cover today in this. Because that that is part of the swirl that we're going to be dealing with, with what Frank did. And I know I don't usually start with a quote, but I'm gonna today because I found a good one. So this is actually from Shakespeare's Henry VIII, Act 2, Scene 3. I have touched the highest point of all my greatness, 
And from that full meridian of my glory, I haste now to my setting. That quote, full meridian of glory, found its way to the title of my main source for my content today. A guy named Paul Merton wrote a book about measuring the earth and he titled it Full Meridian of Glory. Hmm. So, and maybe- Okay, sorry. Can I ask a question? Yes. We're still measuring the earth. They literally cannot stop. Can't stop, won't (laughs) stop. Okay. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Okay. Thought we solved a lot of problems in our first Solved some, created some more. Okay. In fact, they have 99 problems, and every country having its own meridian is 99 of them. I'm going to sound really stupid here for just a second. What does it mean for a country to have its own meridian? What does that mean? I'm so glad you asked. Okay. I'm going to tell you. Okay. It's important. So it's not a stupid question? It's It's not not like everyone else listening is like, that was dumb. No, everyone else is listening like, excuse me, there is one meridian, the prime meridian, and it's in Greenwich. Doi. Hey, turns out it has not been that way since pretty much for most of human history. Okay. It's only been that way. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. We'll get I also that. don't really remember what the purpose of having the prime meridian is. Like, what does that even matter? Trains. So. Trains. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Okay. So to begin with. We need to go back to the issue of France and England not getting along. Oh, geez. Okay. Yes. Okay. So if you recall from our- get along with a lot of people. uh, Well, I mean, if you recall from the first, uh, they couldn't get along with themselves. Let's, I mean, mean, they were going through it during this time. Yeah, that whole guillotine thing. I mean, that was not, that wasn't their best moment, let's be honest. Robespierre. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. So if you'll recall from our first episode this season, England and France got into it about a lot of things. Yep. One of them was the shape of the earth, egg or grapefruit. England mm-hmm. said grapefruit, ended up being right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this wasn't the only time England and France had a science battle. The events we're concerned with come after the French geodesic expedition to Peru of 1735. And they involve our guy, Frank. Okay. And so now we're going to start with a little background on something called the Paris Meridian. Okay. Way back in the 1660s, the Academy of Sciences and the Paris Observatory were established during the reign of King Louis XIV. We talked about that quite a bit, so I'm not going into all of it again. But remember that the Royal Society in England is a club where it's an honor to be selected? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the French Academy, if you'll recall, is a place where you get paid to do science. Okay. It's a job. Yeah. So sometimes the science you had to do was the science that the guy paying your checks said to do. You didn't necessarily get to have pet projects. It was, you know, so put that in your satchel. Okay. One project that the Academy undertook was an accurate map of France because there simply wasn't one at the time. Very frustrating when you're trying to figure out where your property ends and how much tax money you owe, Mm, for example. So the Academy appointed a guy named Jean Picard, not the starship captain oh okay but his potential namesake according Hmm. to some sources Hmm. to figure the whole thing out why jean well he loved precise measurements even more than our guy tico brahe who was also known for his insistence on precision and proper instrumentation for science they were besties (laughs) in that regard but jean couldn't just measure and map france 
He okay. needs to back up and figure how big the earth was first, not the circumference, like distance around. We already okay. knew that. Eratosthenes back in ancient Greece figured that out. Okay. I'm talking about the figure of the earth, which refers to the radius of the sphere, grapefruit, squishy grapefruit, the radius of the sphere that is the earth. Okay. If you want, if you want to, you know, if you want to talk about squishy spheres and grapefruits and all that, go back to episode one, as I mentioned, but right. Jean was trying to figure out the scale he was working with and he okay. needed the radius of the entire earth to do that. Okay. To begin this process, he decided to survey a line from the north of Paris to the south of Paris. Okay. And he was going to use, guess what? Oh my gosh, triangulation to do it. Okay. As I've discussed before, triangulation is where you make a chain of triangles from one point to another point and then use trigonometry to figure out the distance between those points. But Jean wasn't picking any old starting points and ending points. He was going to lay his baseline for the triangulation on an arc of the meridian. What's a meridian arc, you ask, because that's mm -hmm. what I asked the Googles. Yes. It's the curve between two points on the Earth's surface with the same longitude. Okay. So you've got a longitudinal line. Okay. You pick a point on it, and then you pick a point further down on it. Okay. That arc, he was measuring a distance on one of those arcs. Okay. Okay. So he made a chain of 13 triangles along the meridian arc from the point in the northern, uh, from the point in northern Paris to the one in southern Paris. Again, this is super involved, so I'm not going into all of how he did it, but okay. he was using astronomy and math and calculations. They figured out that one degree of latitude, okay. or remember the latitude lines are the lines that go horizontally, right? right? Yep. So from one to the other, it is 111 kilometers or 69 miles. Okay. When you use that and do more math, which most of you who are listening won't care about, so I'm skipping it. Yes. Jean Picard found out that the terrestrial radius is 6,328.9 kilometers. Okay. Not, and, and I know I'm saying kilometers, but it wasn't standardized yet, but turns okay. out that the actual value that we know today of the terrestrial radius is 6,357 kilometers. Hmm, wow. So that means that Jean was only off by 0.44%. Wow. Yeah, so he really nailed it. Yeah. This number is really important, and Sir Isaac Newton himself used it when he was coming up with the whole gravity thing. So, like, huh. this, having this radius, the measure of the Earth, this radius of the sphere, was hugely important. But anyway, Jean and the others at the Academy went on to finish an accurate survey of France, and the king remarked that he had lost more France to astronomers than to his enemies. Because turns out that France was a lot smaller than everyone thought. Oh. Yeah. But the map they published in 1693 was accurate. And so it was kind of the standard map of France for the time. Okay. And that's where the Paris Meridian makes its first appearance. Okay. It was this line that they drew to deal with scale. The scale okay. and the shape and the shape and the size and the measure and all that of mm -hmm. the earth and France. Okay. Well, why would you mark a meridian on a map of France? Okay, so here's the thing about meridians. The Earth hasn't always had one. A meridian is simply a place where you consider zero degrees longitude to be. It's like home base. Okay. 
And it's completely arbitrary, unlike the equator. Okay. The equator is, because of where the sun is, the equator has to be a certain place, right? Mm -hmm. But longitude doesn't work that way. Okay. Okay. So why do we need a meridian? This is what you asked. Mm -hmm. Time. The, mer the word meridian means midday. A meridian is a place where the sun is directly overhead at solar nude, halfway between sunrise and sunset. And that's a lot less arbitrary than just picking any old longitudinal line to be zero degrees. So each country, because not the sun is not hitting every country at the same time of day, mm -hmm in the same way because our earth rotates and it's tilted yes. right mm -hmm. so each country would have a meridian line where they marked time that was their zero degrees which was totally fine until you have easier and more frequent international travel okay okay so we're going to come back to that so put that in your satchel for a minute the Paris meridian was first going to be very important to the metric system, like central to it, in fact. So over time, the Paris meridian that Jean had laid out had to be extended because they needed to keep measuring, they needed to use it to keep measuring stuff. So they would have to extend it kind of in both directions, like out, okay? Many surveyors went about adding to the line, which is how the map of France came to be so accurate. But the work on this whole project would be interrupted by a little thing at first called the French Revolution. You may have heard of it. The mm -hmm. first one, okay. this, like the OG French right, Revolution, right? right? Mm -hmm. So long story short, France got rid of its monarchy in favor of other options, right? The right. option that we're concerned with is the revolutionary government. They were making a lot of reforms after the monarchy fell, one of which was to make trade fair and uniform throughout the country. The way they wanted to make that a reality was by having a standard system of money and measures. Remember okay. how I said that the members of the academy had to do the science that their bosses were paying for? Yes. Yeah, the revolutionary government is the captain now, and they asked the academy to come up with a standardized measurement system. The Academy, wisely, decided to base their measurements on invariable quantities in nature. Okay. So they, they based it on things that were observable and everybody knew where they were and you could actually like physically deal with it. According like, to, this is according to Paul Merton, uh, okay. who wrote Full Meridian of Glory. So like the length of Paris is 8,000 hamsters or... Exactly. Like, you know, <laughs> the cathedral was the size of 14 wash tubs, you know, okay. like, yeah, maybe that wasn't best because really, and, and really until this time, the measurements were based on things like the king's thumb or the king's foot, <laughs> but the king's thumb slash foot in France wasn't the same as the king in England, for example. So mm -hmm. that made, makes trade with English textile merchants very difficult. Mm -hmm. Plus, who was going to prove that the measure you were using was that of the king or the thumb or whatever it was it's like he was around to let you hold something up to his foot and check the line <laughs> right yes it's very impractical so the academy also decided that all units would derive from base units having units of measurement that were independent of each other didn't make sense so do you see where the me metric system is kind of coming to be here mm -hmm. plus Finally, this was, they were really excited about this. 
they wanted to use the very newfangled decimal system to set the whole thing up using tens and tenths, for example. Those three principles are still the root of the metric system to this day. So that's very rad. Hmm. So the Academy did some work and some research. In 1791, the National Assembly, which was part of this new government option mm -hmm. that they were testing out, taken for a test mm -hmm. run, mm -hmm. decided based on this research that their base unit for distance would be called the meter. And it would be equal to one ten millionth of the quarter meridian, i.e. the distance between the North Pole and the equator along the Paris meridian. Okay. Okay. And all of this was well and good, but the Academy had a problem. They decided that all of their surveys to this point weren't accurate enough to actually define the meter. It was going to be one ten millionth of the quarter meridian, but exactly how long is that quarter meridian? We didn't, we didn't know. We didn't actually know. They decided because what had happened is technology had started to progress. There was new instrumentation and new methods being used that were even more accurate than Jean Picard's, which is saying something, Mr. 40.44%, yeah. right? So the instrument that they would be using now was called the Borda Repeating Circle. And Borda was a French mathematician. He came up with this instrument that used two telescopes and a complete circle for the scale versus one telescope and like a quarter slice, like a sextant, you know? Oh, so, okay. Yeah, like not one of those. It's got the whole circle, two mm -hmm. telescopes. Um, or no, it wasn't a sextant. It was a quadrant. Um, and it wasn't that. Huh. Yeah, it was a quadrant. The sextant is a navel thing. Anyway, the Academy decided to use Borda's repeating circle to re-measure the Paris meridian, which is the first step in making accurate measurements to standardize the meter. We got to re-measure this thing here, get it standardized, then we can like kind of reline everything else up. Okay. Mm -hmm. The French Revolution, which was still happening in one form or another, really made the whole thing difficult. Like, the guy in charge was literally on his way to the guillotine because he was suspected to be a spy and or an aristocrat when an official stepped in and was like, no, 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 we need him for science. Knock it off. Hmm. Um, so this same guy who was in charge, Jean-Baptiste de Lam, was uh -huh. eventually fired from his position because he was friends with Antoine Lavoisier. And for mm -hmm. a discussion on that situation... Uh, yes. Check out our brawl from season two. Okay. Oh, yes. Anyway, he was not popular either. He was not either. Poor guy. Um, but the difficulties disrupted the survey project until around 1795. But by then, the terror was over, and the political scene was, for France anyway, in a relative sense, calm. Okay. Which was great because that same year, the government rolled out the metric system. Before the meter had been properly defined, which is definitely okay. something a government would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, something else the government would definitely do was to hold an international conference about it so that everybody would be on the same page, but only invite their allies. So not Britain and not the U.S. and not Germany. Wait, we weren't allies with... Not at that time. Wait, where are we? How are we not allies with the French at this time? 1800s. Oh, Wait, we are we... in the 1800s now? Okay. We're in the very... This, this is 1798. Are we fine? Okay. We were all the way across the ocean, too. They didn't care about us. Well, they had bigger problems with Spain and uh, Britain. Oh, and Germany, apparently, which is going to come up repeatedly this season, apparently. Okay. So this Jean-Baptiste guy had until November of 1798, which was the date of this conference, to get his report done. He needed an accurate survey of the Paris Meridian, and he had to use that to tell everyone how to measure a meter. 
he was able to present something useful, but these guys ran into yet another problem. Turns out that the Earth isn't uniformly curved literally anywhere. They couldn't mm-hmm. actually standardize anything based on natural landmarks because the Earth isn't standard anywhere, naturally. Jean-Baptiste and his colleagues decided to use the longest survey of the Paris Meridian as their standard, and thus the meter was officially born. Hmm. So that's how we got the meter. And now I'm like, I don't even know how many minutes in, and I haven't even mentioned Frank, but I'm coming to that. Okay. You have to have this background, otherwise nothing else will make sense, Okay. okay. The French Revolution is over. Napoleon, the OG Napoleon, is right. the captain now. Jean-Baptiste, this guy who almost got beheaded, okay, mm-hmm. he presented his finished work to Napoleon, and he was pleased with it, but it wasn't actually complete. One of Jean-Baptiste's colleagues hadn't properly finished the southern measurements for the extension of the Paris Meridian. Like, going north, no problemo. Going south, problemo. Mucho problemo. This colleague was Pierre Neshane. I probably said that wrong. His name was Pierre, Pete, if you will, who at one point met the BA we've been building up to this whole time, Frank Arago. Mm -hmm. When Pierre met Frank, he wasn't impressed, but Frank turned out to be very impressive, as Brynja told us. Mm -hmm. When Pierre died, and Pierre's son absolutely did not want his position at the observatory, Frank ended up taking over that position as secretary of the Paris Observatory. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Once he was in charge, he had to decide if finishing correctly Pierre's work of extending the Paris Meridian was worth it. Okay. He did think it was a worthwhile project. He wanted this survey to be complete and right. So he submitted a proposal to the director about it, and the director approved it. So Frank heads off to measure the southern sector of the Paris Meridian in the Mediterranean, which would have been really cool if Spain and France weren't about to go to Mm. war. Yes. Yeah, because he was 20 and he was going on an adventure. And so he took a buddy with him. He and a guy named Jean Biot headed to Spain to get to work. They had some help from some Spanish scientists because they weren't fighting yet. And they Mm -hmm. were able to use the instruments left behind by Pierre before he like died and all that stuff. Okay. It's 1806. Mm-hmm. Frank is up what he called the bleakest mountain near Valencia. Okay. And the weather conditions, as we learned, is typical from talking about the Paris expedition, were less than ideal. Mm-hmm. Here's a young hotshot astronomer stuck up a mountain in bad weather. Mm-hmm. Luckily, no, I don't know if I would say luckily, but there was <laughs> there was a monastery at the foot of the mountain. It was a Carthusian monastery, and that particular order of monks, which still exists today, so I hope I'm getting this right, lives in what they refer to as shared solitude. So it's a bunch of people living together, but it's silent, and you're kind of on your own. Uh, Seems pretty unlikely, then, that a monk, let alone two monks, would hike up the mountain to hang out with people and have a chat, but that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. Two monks who were supposed to not talk to anyone or hang out with people went up and talked with Frank and Jean. Then, though together, though, they went separately, and when they caught each other, they decided not to tattle on each other, and I picture it looking very much like that Spider-Man meme where they're both pointing <laughs> at each other. I feel mm. like it was, yeah, one of those moments. Anyway, these monks, uncharacteristically of most monks, I feel, 
brought nothing but drama. The younger of the two started throwing shade on religion in front of Frank and Jean. Jean suspected him of being an agent provocateur, which is someone who tries to get you to say something or do something bad, and then they get you in trouble for it. Saying anything bad against the Roman Catholic Church would have been dicey at this time, considering they're in a very Roman Catholic Spain. And so Jean was like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm not falling for that. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Apparently, though, that offended the young monk who the next day decided to hold Jean at gunpoint while Frank literally talked this monk out of murdering Jean. Oh, my goodness. So I have I have concerns for this young monk. I don't know if he's maybe cut out for the monk life, but OK. But the drama didn't end there because the older monk tried to get Frank and Jean to drink more wine than was appropriate during a mass that the monk was performing. And Frank suspected that it wasn't because he wanted them to get drunk, but it was because he was trying to poison them. Okay. Yeah, kind of a lot was going on at this time in Frank's life. So if you thought the lions were wild, (laughs) I mean. Oh my goodness. Yeah, but Frank got himself, Frank being just French enough, got himself into drama too. In one of my sources, it said that once while he was taking a break from being on the mountaintop and being held at gunpoint by monks or mm-hmm. poisoned with communion wine by drunk by monks. <laughs> Gosh, okay. He met a girl who invited him over to her granny's house for snacks. And I think it was as innocent as refreshments, not like, you know, that's not a euphemism. Oh, okay, okay. But it doesn't matter because this girl had a fiance who decided to attack Frank when he left granny's house. Now, Oops. fortunately for Frank, he had hired a mule and cart to take him back. And in the attack, the mule trampled the fiance. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Frank... Frank told everybody that the mule had been the culprit because they showed up and they're like, how is this man dead? And Frank was like, guys, it was totally the mule. And I guess this mule was rather infamous because the authorities were like, oh, yeah, that's legit. And then they just let him go. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Oh, gosh. So then there was the time that Frank decided to set a new station for his triangulation point on a mountain inhabited by bandits. Mm-hmm. No worries, though. He had an escort from the National Guard, but once he was established, he was kind of on his own. Mm-hmm. So one evening, a customs officer comes up to see him. The weather was bad, and Frank's like, no worries, bro. Come in where it's warm. I've got food. Just hang out till the weather clears. The next morning, Frank saw the town's mayor headed up for a visit, and when he told the customs officer, like, hey, the mayor's on his way up. We can have breakfast together. The guy bolted with no explanation, just like, you know bandit shaped puff of smoke (laughs) out the door because turns out he wasn't a customs officer Hmm. he was a bandit who had planned to kill frank until frank was so nice to him oh that's nice how do we know this though you're you're wondering well how do we know that he was a bandit that was going to kill him well frank discovered the plot when the guy had the audacity to come back the next day and Frank gave him shelter again, but in the morning was like, Frank was like, dude, I, I know who you are. The mayor told me what's going on. Like, are you going to kill me? Mm. And the guy was like, well, you realize you're just a scientist and so you're probably poor. So nah, you're safe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Too bad this bandit didn't tell all the other bandits. Didn't, mm. didn't pass that around. Didn't get the memo. Didn't, no. Frank was traveling south to continue his, listen, this 
Frank is literally just trying to triangulate. All he wants to do is <laughs> look in his little telescopes, write some numbers down, and move to the next high point. That's all he's trying to do. Yeah. So he's traveling south to continue this process when he was compelled to hide in the kitchen of a farmhouse. Like him, his equipment, his mules, everything, because there were bandits that were trying to rob him. Okay. Yeah. And the mule just trampled them all to death? wasn't the same mule he had to leave mm. that one back in this the you know by the granny's mm. house apparently i see yeah so beyond political and personal trouble there was equipment trouble too their repeating circle broke so jean leaves frank they decide to split up jean had to take it back to paris and get it repaired frank stayed where he was and tried to continue his work but please recall that he's in spain right and, oh, by the way, the Spanish Inquisition is still going on. Uh, oh, really? Yes. I had to look. I read that. And I was the like, 1800s? Was it? Yes. It lasted sure. till quite some time after this, in fact. Really? Now, the heyday was no. earlier. But okay, okay. technically, the Spanish Inquisition, I mean, as you can see, really, nobody does expect the Spanish Inquisition to be happening <laughs> this late. Like, mostly, it's just surprise at this point. So... Frank and Jean very much also expected the Spanish Inquisition because they knew it was going on and they knew it was going to be a problem. Okay. Hence the trouble with the monks. That was that kind of explains why the okay. monks were the way they were, right? Okay. Frank was in Valencia when he got to see the result of a trial where a woman has been convicted of witchcraft. Hmm. Probably she could add fractions with different denominators or something. <laughs> like, or... She, you know, told someone that they had given her the incorrect change, which means she knew how to count money. So you're a witch. And they had to, you know. Anyway, yeah. the sentence was that she had to be stripped to the waist and covered with honey and feathers. And then they put her backwards on a donkey and led the animal through the streets of the city before they hit her on the back several times with a shovel. <laughs> Sorry. It's not funny. It's not that funny, last part like, got me. So here's the thing, though. Frank was low-key appalled. Because this was in Valencia, uh -huh. in a learned city like Valencia. But the Inquisition didn't end until the 1830s. So, uh, yeah. Um, so. I don't... What? Okay. Okay, yeah. I don't know. Why the honey and feathers? Not sure. <laughs> Why backwards on the mule? Well, they couldn't put her frontwards because that's the direction the Lord rode on his triumphal entry. Probably something like that. As for hitting her with a shovel, I don't know. It was, you but know. But beating Satan out of her? I don't, like, like, well, and it was probably a long time. This is probably the origin of why people don't like fractions. Punishments like this. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, I, tar and feathering always has seemed like an odd punishment, but like... Well, the tar will rip your skin off when you pull it off. Right. You can't, you can't, but, so you're going to be missing skin. But honey wouldn't. No. Maybe they didn't have, maybe, maybe because, maybe because they had been going so hard with the Inquisition, they were out of tar and honey was the best they could do. I mean, we do know that the bees are Italian, so. Right. So. They're not too far from Spain and Rome and yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Why a shovel? Okay, none of it makes sense. Why a shovel, though? I don't know. I don't. I don't know why she had to be. Again, I don't know why the Spanish Inquisition was even a good idea to begin with. I have a lot of questions that that are that come before the backwards on a mule covered in honey and feathers <laughs> being beaten with a shovel. Okay. Yeah. I don't. Did that? Hmm. 
that'll learn her to do her fractions i mean you know okay yeah i guess it's better than other people that got convicted of witchcraft that just who were murdered or burned or drowned Drowned, yeah you know so not as bad as this woman survive do we don't know know. do you survive honey and feathering well honey's water-based yeah so i mean just take a quick shower no it's not it's wax isn't it i don't know anyway honey will dissolve in water it dissolves in tea and that's true okay so then why oh i don't don't know i don't know somebody explain this to me if there is an explanation i would love to hear why the honey and feathers yeah because i was i was expecting tar and feathers and it was like honey really okay but apparently that's what the the punishment they picked that day okay so sorry I know that's not important, and that was quite a detour, but that was just a no, really interesting story. It it was. He had a lot as as well, but like you already told us how he got from Mallorca to Paris. True, right? Um. So, and again, I know that I haven't talked about like him doing a whole bunch of science. Yes, but it was repeated triangulations. So, like once you oh. know how to triangulate, you just yeah. like move and set you up keep camp. Doing it. That's all he was doing, right? So in 1809, when he made it back to Paris and right. went and dropped off his work, his his boss at the academy was really glad because he also thought that Frank was dead. Not only did his family think he was dead, yeah. his boss did too. Yeah. Um, and Frank had managed though through all of these adventures and misadventures to keep his papers and his notes and his measurements. So when he could sit down in the relative safety of France and compile everything. He was able to confirm what the Peruvian expedition had proved in the 1700s. Okay. The Earth is an oblate sphere. Okay. Now we've now we've measured it repeatedly. So they they just love to measure things. So thanks to his triangulations and calculations, he mm-hmm. was able to find one degree of latitude from London to Formentera. That's a very long distance. Okay. Okay. Each degree from one point to the other got slightly bigger, which is what the Parisians in the 1700s is shown, right? So as oh, they're yeah. right, south right. on that line, it's getting bigger because it's bowing out. Mm-hmm. So Frank's work of extending the Paris Meridian had a lot of implications for both science and politics. So why don't we still use the Paris Meridian? Mm, no idea. Well, I'll tell you in the legacy segment because that is a whole story of itself so i'm thinking let's take a break and get to that because you have to tell us about some interesting tidbits mm-hmm. right syndrome namely mm-hmm. and i gotta tell you guys why greenwich is zero degrees okay so let's take a break Okay, so let's get into Frank's legacy. And I promise to tell you why we don't use the Paris Meridian as zero degrees anymore. So let's start with that. And then we'll let Brenna wrap it up with some of his more personal life Mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. So Frank is wild. He's cool. Obviously lived an interesting life. But practically no one has heard of him. And I'd never heard of the Paris. I didn't even know there was a Paris Meridian until I got involved in this. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I told you that the Paris Meridian was important first because of measuring the Earth and it's the basis for the meter. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned that meridians are important because of time. So the Paris Meridian was not the only meridian being worked on during this time. Astronomers in Greenwich, England were also surveying a meridian. 
Long story short, there was a conference in 1884 where this whole Meridian thing had to be dealt with because, as Paul Merdin put it, quote, the reason for the conference was because as trade and global communication became more common in the 19th century, it also became necessary to rationalize the systems of longitude and time based on numerous different national observatories. In the second half of the 19th century, there were nautical maps circulating nautical maps circulating based on meridians in London, Greenwich, Paris, Cadiz, Naples, Christiana, the Canary Islands, uh, Stockholm, Lisbon, Copenhagen, and Rio de Janeiro, to name a few. Oh. Yeah. Land maps were based on these meridians and others at Madrid, Munich, Brussels, Amsterdam, Washington, and Warsaw. It was confusing for everyone everyone sometimes confusion about longitude was simply an annoyance but it had the potential to be dangerous because it used to be that when ships would pass each other like on the ocean they -hmm. would exchange estimated positions for comparison oh like before ship to ship communication was possible with like like they would have like giant chalkboards with writing on them telling them you know whatever yeah so if two ships from two countries with two different meridians compared position and they made adjustments based on that other ship Mm. that could cause a real problem when you get close to shore when there's nothing but deep ocean around it's fine you but you need to know just how close that reef is before you put a hole in your boat and a few minutes of longitude can make a difference based on a difference in meridians okay so the same can be said for time and it's less dangerous but wildly inconvenient to say that an eclipse happened at a certain time based on local observatory time but when you try to tell your colleagues about it and their time is different it's going to cause confusion and let's not even discuss what would happen if you left on the eleven forty-five train from paris to lisbon and the time in spain meant a one-hour difference and you were late for your connecting train mm. okay because this is before time zones oh yeah okay okay The best way to standardize time is to find a meridian, the prime meridian, where Mm -hmm. everybody agrees that we measure zero longitude and zero hour from there. Okay. So the conference happens in Washington, D.C. in 1884. The U.S. fully intended to name a prime meridian at this meeting. The U.S. is like, guys, you're coming here. We're picking the prime meridian, you know, checking that box, moving on. France was like, I don't know, let's just discuss the idea if we should even have a common prime meridian first. So they did, and unsurprisingly, everyone unanimously agreed that, yes, a prime meridian was needed. Mm -hmm. The U.S., in a move that I feel was very mature, was like, we don't necessarily need it to be in America. Like, that's not something we care about. Okay. Their vote was for the meridian to be in Greenwich. France said that a neutral meridian should be picked whether there is is an observatory in that place or not. England was like, no, it has to be someplace with an observatory because that's the most precise option. We're trying to get this right, you guys. I know that you love to repeatedly measure the earth, but can we stop? (laughs) So based on all of that, the options, based on those criteria, the options were Paris, Berlin, Greenwich, and Washington. Here's why Greenwich won. At this point in the conversation, someone pointed out that the Greenwich Meridian was the one that nautical maps of the day 
all used. Britain, oh. Britain had the biggest and best navy. Yeah, makes sense. And they wrote the charts that everybody used. They were precise and they were accurate and they were based on Greenwich being the prime meridian. Mm -hmm. If the meridian was selected at some place other than Greenwich, all, all nautical maps would have to be reprinted. And that hmm. little task would cost $10 million at the time. Yeah, I believe it. that's how you got around. Right. So based on that, a truly a financial, a practical decision, it made sense that the prime meridian would be in Greenwich. But France made a good point and said, listen, we were the first to do all of this. Changing our meridian will be a huge pain in the butt, but we'll do it if England also makes some kind of sacrifice, like adopting the metric system. Because okay. they weren't using it, right? Oh. England was like, no, thank you. And just <laughs> so you know, the U.S. was using the metric system for science by this time, so we're not getting into about yards and meters. Okay. So, but there was a lot of back and forth until someone pointed out the fact, with actual facts and figures and data, mm -hmm. that 66% of the world's ships and 75% of the world's tonnage were already using the Greenwich Meridian thanks to those nautical maps. Oh. Mm -hmm. So... France, you can want concessions all you want, but it is literally a vast majority of people yeah. already using Greenwich. So yeah. practicality went out. The Greenwich Meridian was adopted as zero degrees longitude. Um, hmm. And they also had to discuss time because like many English speaking countries call Greenwich Mean Time is actually called Coordinated Universal Time or UTC because the name in French is Universal Temps Cordon. Uh -oh. So the French weren't left out completely. They got you know, they got that. And England didn't have anything named after it. So it's not, you know, it's all fine. Mm -hmm. We call it the prime meridian now and mm -hmm. UTC time. Um, but it took France. Guess when France finally decided to go along with it? Oh, gosh. There's no telling. 1911. Wow, that's a long time. It is. And it's a good thing they got on board because the Great War was a coming. Mm, yeah. And, you know, so... Mm. Today, you can still walk the Paris Meridian in Paris. In 1994, a Dutch artist named Jan Dibbets created, uh, it's probably Jan, Jan Dibbets created an art installation called Homage to Arago, which is our dude. Oh. Yes. It's wow. made of 135 bronze medallions set into the pavement along the actual Paris Meridian. And some oh. have evidently been stolen, which is gross. Like, guys, why? Aww. I know. But enough are there that you can absolutely walk a good portion of it. It's considered one of those, like, out-of-the-way tourist attractions oh, uh -huh. if you're visiting Paris. Um, but it's there, and you can see it, and you can walk along it. Aww. So that is how Frank helped standardize time, kind of offhandedly, backhandedly. <laughs> That's part of, I consider that to be part of his legacy, too. Because without his work... I, like, I don't even know if Par the Paris Meridian would have been in the running, you know, because those southern measurements were a mess. But yeah, so that is my legacy. He was, uh, Frank was an awesome dude. He did, lived a wildlife, saw awesome stuff and uh, made significant contributions to surveying and map making and just like in general, you know, pr proving the guys who spent 10 years nearly getting gored by bulls and you know murdered by various other things diseases yeah. malaria whatever mm -hmm. um, he proved them right so that was all very cool so now tell me about bright syndrome um okay i will but um 
So as I talked about his life, I didn't mention getting married or kids or anything. We haven't talked about that. But right. apparently he had two children named Emmanuel and Alfred. All I know is that Emmanuel was born in 1812 when Frank was about 26, and he ended up being like a politician or lawyer type and something. Because okay. at some point, the ambassador of France to Switzerland. Wow. Um, and then Alfred was born in 1815, and in the French Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. like the French wiki, his mom is listed as Marie-Suzanne Carrier. And I didn't really deep dive into her. Um, I don't know why Emmanuel doesn't have a mother listed. Like, if you look him up, it's just he's the son of Francois Arago. But, like, I don't think he sprang forth from his loins. Like, I don't that's know. Not, I don't, that's not how that works, actually. There, there, had, there, had to be, there had to be another person involved in that transaction, um, technically. But, like, there's nothing about getting married. So I don't know if he just fathered two kids with two. I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know. So he did have progeny, um, but he didn't die a rich man. Uh, and in fact, I don't think he was ever particularly wealthy from anything we've heard. I mean, no. you make some money working for the county, but you're not like. You need a day job. Yeah. Remember our guy from the first episode who ran some scheme with Voltaire and got rich that way, right? Yeah. Like, But. How did that see it by? One source I read alluded to the fact that he might not have been great at providing for his family, um, which, again, I don't even know if he had wives or I don't I don't know where these children really came from and how that all want to go or went about yeah. happening. But um, I did read this quote. If he has not bequeathed to them a fortune like his family's children. He has left an immortal name. He has created by his genius a renown more illustrious than all the renown ever gained by arms, which for a long time enjoyed the privilege of giving fame, but now yields the right to the peaceful conquest of science. I'm just saying that if his sons had to choose like their dad being famous or like having some money, they might have like maybe picked money. I feel like. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Don't know what kind of dad he was. Don't know. Don't really know. Like, these are the things I would love to know more about. Like, yes, I have questions about this. Like, what's the deal with Marie? And yeah, did he not get married? Did he get married? Or why aren't there records of it? Like, it's we're not back in the. Yeah, I don't know if we were in the second century. Okay, not having records. But it feels like by this point. Right. There should be. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of political stuff going on. So who knows? True. Also, you mentioned his, um, the Paris Meridian thing that you can still see, but did you, first of all, did you know that people, certain people have their name on the Eiffel Tower? Yes. Okay. Did you know that Frank is one of those 72 people that have their name on the Eiffel Tower? No, I didn't know that. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Um, and all of his works, cause he went on and did all sorts of mathy, whatever, mm-hmm. um, all his works were published in like 17 volume monstrosity of stuff. Anyway, yeah. that's a lot. It was big. It, lot. Was, yeah, it, was, it was, it was big. Okay. So let's talk about Bright's disease, um, or Bright's malady. Okay. So we haven't talked about Bright's disease before, right? Like we've never used that nope. term. Okay. Nope. Okay. Well, I know that we can all sleep easier knowing that we are talking about nephritis again. 
I was hoping that this was going to be about the kidneys. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Bright's yeah, malady yeah. or Bright's disease, also called glomerulonephritis or just like nephritis. Is like it's much better. Just nephritis, yeah. um, which if this is your very first BA in science episode is inflammation of the nephrons in the kidneys. And in this case, inflammation, uh, inflammation of the glomeruli as well. Um, like you can have nephritis from a variety of things. Like it's just it's a general, it's a catch-all term in a way mm-hmm. of like you just have some kind of inflammation. But um, nephrons specifically um, serve a certain function. We've we've gone down all of that. Nephritis nephrons are right. the main functional unit of the kidney. They're in charge of all the filtering and what gets put back in the blood and what gets sent right. to the bladder. Yeah. So yep. it's a big deal. Anyway, this disease can be caused by anything that disrupts the normal immune system functioning or by damage to um, the glomeruli, which can be a result of diabetes, which is called diabetic nephropathy. Oh, and didn't he have diabetes? Yes. Ah. Since our boy had diabetes, it's, I mean, it's probably kind of like um, the diet. It was probably diabetic nephro- nephropathy. Yeah. Right? Anyway, if you if you've never like gone down the nephritis rabbit hole with us, you can go read all about it. But we. I felt like for like the first two seasons, it was just nephritis every five seconds. And then we haven't talked about nephritis in a while. We have had a hiatus from it, which has made me sad. It has just not come up again. I'm thrilled that we're back. We got to talk about amoebic dysentery on more than one occasion, which was kind of cool. That was cool. We spent a lot of time on catheters as well. Yeah, we haven't had to go down the catheter rabbit hole, which I know dad is really thankful for. Yes, very, very relieved. Probably more than just dad, but he especially was just not a huge fan of all the catheter stuff yeah no which is fair yeah so um yeah so we're back to somebody with nephritis wow that's so but also sad because you know that with the diabetes and all the damage and whatever just you know kind of wore him down so yeah um i think he's kind of cool i don't get super excited about geodesic work because just I don't know yeah there's not a lot to it but I mean it's important feels like it was important so yeah it was important he went to great lengths to finish the job and he was look he was important enough that his name's on the Eiffel Tower so that's worth something uh, yeah clearly like clearly he is and like again if someone took the trouble of putting 135 bronze medallions into the sidewalks and walls and spaces because they're just like wherever that line is that's where those medallions got stuck Mm -hmm. so if it was that important to someone then you know he's important he's well known and 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 again more of a again more in the style of paracelsus in terms of the kind of life he lived because he went everywhere and did all the things and you know so yeah I'm glad you did him. I'm glad we covered this guy. It was cool. Yeah. Despite the fact that I couldn't remember why I had put him on the list. So, (laughs) Um, sources? Yeah, I did use Britannica. Um, There was an article called Francois Arago in the Canadian Journal of Repertory of Industry, Science, and Art and a record of the proceedings of the Canadian Institute. Uh, That's where that one quote that I read at the end about his leaving his kids, you know, fame, not fortune. Um, And then The History of My Youth, which is Arago's autobiography. Nice. My sources. Yeah, my main source was Full Meridian of Glory, Perilous Adventures in the Competition to Measure the Earth by Paul Merton. And it was, it was very, it was good. It was very interesting. Um, And then I I had just a bunch of websites. Um, Mm -hmm. It was hard to find 
concise information about this because as you heard from the history there are a lot of moving parts a lot of pieces got pulled in from different parts of like measurement and science history so it's just you know kind of I was kind of all over the place having to research this one but uh yeah but yeah those uh were my sources too so that means it's time to tease next week's episode yeah so next week we'll talk about someone who probably said the f word a lot no, no, not that F word, different F word. But it still um, makes you uncomfortable when you're- It still makes you really uncomfortable. And I'm just saying, if you don't lie to your dental hygienist about how often, you're fl- how often you floss, I, you're a liar. You're a very different person than I am. Because, and it, like the, also, like the audacity. What do you mean, when's the last time I flossed? You were there. <laughs> Ugh. Don't you remember? Yeah. No, I'm just no. kidding. Mackenzie, who is my hygienist, listens to this. Um, no. And I, I really do floss. She knows that I really do floss more than once a year, twice a year when I see her. But um, actually, Mackenzie, who is my hygienist, was the inspiration. An idea she had was for our inspiration for the next episode. So mm-hmm. she knows who it is. But, like, can you guys guess who it was? So yeah. send us your guesses. And look, I didn't give you another fantastic pun. I know, but I feel like now you're going to like, it's going to be backlogged and they're just going to show up the rest of the season because we're almost halfway oh, through. I know. This is, we are halfway through. This is our halfway point. So yeah, I don't know. We're we'll fast see. guys. Man. Yeah. We'll see if I can come. I don't know. I felt like I started out so strong. I don't know. Maybe I just, you know, went too, too big, too fast. Maybe, maybe. But so now you can like, you know, bring it back for the next, uh, I'm going to try. I'll try. I'll do my best. I don't want to disappoint all of our, you know, tens of listeners who at least dozens of listeners rely on terrible puns. Right. Every episode. So perfect. So that's all I've got for today. How about you? That's it. Awesome. Then until next time, live dangerously, do science.